Okay, so I think it's working, the amplification. Mm. You'll start with a humorous reading by Hafiz, a Persian poet. He says, now that all your worry has proved to be such an unlucrative business, why don't you just find a better job? That's so easy. talking with a, a yogi today and speaking about the experience of just taking in this environment that there's time to really see a flower, an insect, a turkey. And agreed that as we opened up into these uh, simple and exquisite moments that had opened up doors of vastness both in the outer world and seeing what's here, but also equally the door of vastness in the inside. And as the retreat deepens, we enter at times deeper into these mysteries. And Mary Grace spoke about these this morning. Who are we? The mystery is both within and outside of us, but perhaps it's all inside of us. It's all a projection of our own mind. Who are we? I'll make an attempt to read this poem. I've never read it out loud before. It's by Billy Collins, and very much like it. It's called Directions. Actually, reminds me a little bit of being here at Spirit Rock at certain times of the day in late afternoon. He says, The best time is late afternoon when the sun strobes through the columns of trees as you're hiking up, and when you find an agreeable rock to sit on, you'll be able to see the light pouring down into the woods and breaking into the shapes and tones of things, and you'll hear nothing but a spring of a bird song or a leaf falling or a cone or a nut through the trees. And if this is your day, you might even spot a hare, maybe a turkey, or feel the wing, wing beats of geese flying overhead going towards some destination. But it's hard to speak of these things and how the voices of life enter your body and begin to recite their stories. And how the earth holds us painfully against its breast made of hummus and brambles and how we who will soon be gone regard the entities that continue to return greener than ever, spring water flowing through a meadow and the shadows of the clouds passing over the hills, and the ground where we stand, and the tremble of thought taking us, taking the vast of the outside into ourselves. Taking the vast of the outside into ourselves. 
It's said that the last words of a, a Blackfoot Indian chief, his name was Crowfoot, these were his last words. He says, What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. What is life? So we've been working with these practices of the 32 parts. And it brings us in touch not only with these solids and liquids, but what these parts are made of. And Mary Grace referred about a sense of the elements that make up our bodies. This world comes from the stars that we are interconnected. Actually, Einstein once wrote that uh, perhaps we're only this cause of separation is because of a delusion of our consciousness. We're beginning to recognize with the body and these parts that they go on their own. This operating plant, as we begin to lift off the hood or take off the lid and see there's all these different parts that are just doing their thing. The sense of self, the sense of I, me, and my begins to lessen. And just to consider, we think of just I, me, and my, but what about the 32 million bacteria that are living on one inch of skin? Times how many square inches of skin? Is that me? Many years ago, my teacher, Tungpulu Toya Kabai E Siero, Tungpulu. Ghost Mountain. He lived in a place called Ghost Mountain. It was in the forest. That's Toya. And he was presented the World Peace title by the Buddhist Council. And Seattle, he happens to be the teacher from Ghost Mountain in the forest. I had the good fortune of studying with him, as I mentioned to you a couple of days ago. And on one of his trips to the United States to the monastery, he would often come for four or five months at a time. He would give a series of teachings. And I mentioned to you about um, the teachings of the 32 parts of the body. And this one time he came, and for 80 straight nights, he gave 80 straight discourses on the 80 individual families of organisms that live in your body. Now, we know there's actually much more than 80. But in the Vasudhi Maga, the path of purification, the name of that little heading about these organisms is called living with the many. We live with the many. There is many beings in this body. And Temple Lucero had a, a rhyme that he put at the end of each evening, each discourse, 
So he talked about like the organisms that live in the eye, the organisms that live in the ears, the organisms that live here, the organisms that live there. And then it would always end with po aim, poza, pudo, pibo, pitao, godan, ikanda go i, tudo i, todan, thinjaim, pi. That's Burmese. But what that means is that these organisms eat of the body because this is where the food is. And they poop and they pee and then they copulate, they reproduce, and they have offsprings, and then later they die, and thus your body is a cemetery. And then he'd go on to the next night. (laughs) (laughs) And it goes on and on. Your body is a cemetery. It's also a birth factory. It's just going on and on. My grandmother, my beloved Nettie, I loved her so much. She died a few years ago at the age of 103. I used to joke with her when she was 99. I said, Grandma, you don't look a... When she turned 100, I said, Grandma, you don't look a day over 99. She got a good laugh. But she lived a very... Um, she was a really beautiful person. I really loved my grandma. And actually, I used to think, well, I know everyone is going to die, but I wasn't sure about her because it took 103 years for it to happen. It's a long time. She did die. And I went back to Boston to go to the funeral and you know, I saw her at the funeral home and they hadn't still closed the lid and I was just looking at my grandma. Mm. And I remember one of the people in the memorial chapel closing that lid. I can still hear the sound of that. It's very painful. I wanted more. So lucky. I had a grandma to 103, but I wanted more. And we brought her to the cemetery and I actually went up ahead and saw the grave that was already dug and there was actually a couple of uh, cemetery workers nearby there and I looked inside the grave and there was water in the bottom. <laughs> I asked the cemetery workers, what's going on here? I said, oh, yeah, they, you know, this is not too far from the Atlantic Ocean. There's a high water table, they was telling me, and you know, the water begins to seep up. You know, we pumped it all out yesterday, but it's coming back in. <laughs> Oh, gosh, when I heard that, I didn't want my grandma going in that hole. (laughs) I wanted to pull her out and take her home with me. And it just horrified me. Putting her in, and I could just imagine the dirt going in there, and then the water beginning to fill up, and it was going to become this bacterial orgy. Oh, my God, it was going to be an orgy. And I was, I was actually, I had visceral feeling. I was sickened. And I was just inside, no. So I just sat there with this as this funeral was going on and, and I just reflected on this. And, and then I began to reflect upon that actually, you know, I don't know if you know this about decomposition, but... Um, the very first stage of decomposition begins actually not outside of us, 
inside of us. The organisms that live in our gut are the ones that begin to turn on itself and begin to do the process of decomposition. So I had that going on, reflecting on that. I'm a weird guy. (laughs) And, And then... I started reflecting on all the outside organisms, you know, because the water, the dirt, it's going to be an orgy of a fest. And, and then I just could imagine all of these beings eating her and then shitting her and peeing her and then making love and then their offsprings of having part of her and then everything just exploded into this sense of... Uh, the sense of separation dropped, how we were so intensely interconnected with each other. Those organisms and eating and then offsprings and, and like my grandmother was all of a sudden becoming everywhere. It was a very powerful teaching for me. I actually realized then that she'd given me an incredible gift. I've always felt that I wanted to be buried. I just had that intuition, but I'm not into the marker and the name and the whole deal and the space that it's used. So often I thought rationally cremation is really the way for me to go. But then with this process with my grandmother and recognizing the interior, the beginning of decomposition begins inside our body, and I really try in my life to live with as least harm as possible. I think it's impossible for me anyways to commit absolutely no harm. But I want to try to live with the least harm as possible. I told you about my wife and I with the ticks and, you know, we put them out. And um, and I realized that if I was incinerated, that the first things to go besides this dead body is all of these millions of bacteria. They're going to die. And I, and I just, and, and it was like my grandma like gave me this gift indirectly. Like, no, I'm gonna, I, I want these beings to just have an orgy on me too. <laughs> That's my last gift, my own body. Hafiz speaks about that the earth will laugh one more time at this sweet lover. It's like a cup of wine to the earth. Letting my sweet lover laugh, laugh one last time. So I really thank my grandmother. Mm. And it was a very powerful just to recognize that sense of like there was her body, but then it was going to be broken down, it was going to be eaten, it was going to be excreted, it was going to be reproduced in offsprings, and, and like just boom, 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 boom. This big terrarium of the universe that we all really share. In our sense of separation and disconnection, isolation is such a profound cause of such deep suffering. So sometimes that beautiful question that Mary Oliver asks at the end of her summer poem is so appropriate, it haunts us. She says, doesn't everything die at last and too soon? And tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So I want to share with you a a letter that a friend of mine wrote who has since died. She was dying of lung cancer when she wrote this letter. She knew that she was dying. 
us here in Santa Cruz, we know her as Gail Lewis. Yeah. So she writes, this is just a few months before she died. She says, greetings, precious beings. And so as the days of winter continue to nourish the earth with fluid from the skies, I've begun to contemplate the situation that I find myself in. There is this undercurrent of experience that I'm just waiting around to die. Strange thing when you're told that your time is limited and that many future projections just disappear from my consciousness. And so now I'm left with the question of being fully awake to each passing day, hour, and minute. Old habits are really hard to change and so often I find myself just wasting time. And granted, I've had a lot more time now to meditate and to be still, but my mind keeps questioning just what I could be doing with this time left to me. I wonder if this is just the patterns of behavior that are familiar to me, keeping busy, doing good works, and all the messages that I've followed in the past. But now, though, I'm too tired to do much. And so the dilemma is allowing myself to let go of the old messages and discover new ways to enrich my day, today life. This, my friends, is a challenge, and I never realized how stubborn I am about who I think I am. And so this weaker and more vulnerable me is trying to learn about allowing myself to just let go of the past and really step into this moment. Gail Lewis. Gail asks us, what is it to meet life? To live life with an open heart. Can we live with our hearts wide open? And I've been so touched uh, with the interviews that I've been having with a number of you and more to come. I've been witnessing in the interviews the rawness, the realness. What's this life? And I've also just heard from a number of the sense of being hard on ourselves and Feeling that, you know, my mind's just racing, or I'm feeling these different feelings. I I thought I'm supposed to be quiet. But no, it's that raging madhouse barreling down the hill utterly out of control, as I read about the other night. Many of us want to be made of the right meditative stuff. And at times we forget about the important aspect of practice. No doubt exertion is helpful. But befriending is also helpful. So we can bring at times that subtle aggression of self-improvement even to the cushion. Not doing it right, not doing enough should be different. I'd like to just address part of this tonight. So this reading is actually dedicated to any one of you that feels that you're not made of the right meditative stuff. So if you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, be cheerful and ignore aches and pains, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. 
if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles and eat the same food every day, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, perhaps you made of the right meditative stuff. If you can conquer tension without medical help, relax without liquor, sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, you are probably the family dog. <laughs> so much for being made out of the right meditative stuff. And yet at times, very hard on ourselves. Very hard. So I'd like to share with you a little bit of my own story in the spirit of working with practice that I have been learning for a number of years. And I don't know if it's fair to say, but perhaps meditation is not what you think it is. Sometimes we think about out of the body, mystical experience, and of course in this practice, we're having a major in-the-body experience, maybe more than you even knew you were signing up for. We're learning to turn into the body, into the heart. When I was um, 16 years old, I was a new driver on the roads around Boston. I was inexperienced, but very happy to be driving. And it would snow in the winter and I'd inevitably get into skids and my impulse was to turn away from them. Naturally so. I didn't want to have anything to do with that skid and I kept on skidding out. I remember telling my father this one day and he said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn into it. I heard that and that scared the heck out of me. And what does he know? He's my father. And so I kept on turning away. And I kept on skidding out. And I remember the day came when I reached the futility of turning away because I really experienced it was not getting any better. And I dared, just for a moment, just a little bit, I turned my will towards the skid when I was skidding out. And I can almost still feel it in my body even today, so many years later, that all of a sudden I noticed the car began to kind of straighten. That was amazing. And I feel in many ways a, a very important seed was planted that day, though I maybe didn't understand that then or could articulate it about it then, but now looking back on it, the seed that was planted was the seed of beginning to trust to turn into your fears. Now, it does seem very counterintuitive. I mean, when you get in a skid in the early days, you know, the impulse is to get away. It feels counterintuitive to turn in. That's why I was fighting against it. But a seed was very importantly planted, turning into the skid. It can begin to help to straighten you out. Little did I know that about five years later, when I was 21, there was another important seed that was planted. I had recently flunked out of college and was being readmitted back on warning. 
School didn't make much sense to me, and I had a lot of death early on in my life as well, a brother, a best friend, a grandfather. And it was time of the Vietnam War, and the Beatles uh, grew their hair long, and the times were a-changing. I was one very confused and lost person. So I flunked out, and my mom said, well, you know, take a look at the Coast Guard. Maybe there's something there that'll interest you. It's kind of like this desperate, just look at it. Maybe there's something. Maybe they'll let you back in. And um, I was readmitted back on warning. And there was one class that kind of perked my interest. It was called Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. I didn't know anything about that. But what I did know, that had something to do with the East, and what I did know and what I did like, believe it or not, was Chinese food. (laughs) And... I grew up outside of Boston in a Jewish home, and like we used to love to go to the Chinese restaurants and eat Chinese food. And I loved Chinese food, and I loved the artwork on the walls. And even the waiters and the waitresses had a different vibe than those like at Howard Johnson's or, or Denny's. There was, I'm not kidding, it was really, it was my gut that brought me there. And there was something about the East that I felt attracted to. And so I went into this classroom, and... My professor, Bill Jackson is his name, was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I had never seen a professor like this before. This, of course, was the mid-70s in northeastern Vermont. But none of my other teachers were pretty straight, and I never saw a guy like this. And he began to talk. And I had never met a person that... What can I say? He, He was embodying something. He wasn't just some teacher and professor just regurgitating material. There was something about him that was embodied, and I had never seen or met a human being like that in my entire life. And I became very... I wanted to know what this guy knew. Something... There's a different feel, because this guy was embodying something. So he introduced us to the Tao Te Ching by Latsu and... Reading through it, it was like coming home. I just couldn't believe that somebody thought about life in this way. And I was just like a fish in water. I I just couldn't believe that people thought like this. And this just resonated so deeply inside me. Then I came across uh, this one poem. It's number 47 out of 81 poems by Latsu. And it said, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And when I read that, another huge seed was planted and I began to realize just how lost I had been and still am. But I recognized that this was pointing that if you needed, wanted to know something, you need to start looking in here. And believe it or not, I had not even ever thought about that ever before in my life. I never considered that. I, I, it just didn't even come up for me. I was so lost. That really began my turning in. Little did I know that five years after that, when I was 26, I took my first Vipassana meditation retreat and another powerful seed was planted. And I just want to honor right now my very first Vipassana teacher, Dr. Rina Sirkar. And in this retreat, 
I, I learned a great deal, but I'll also tell you some of the antics. I, I'd never been to a retreat before, and I know some of you, this is your first time too, and I was the guy that actually filled up the wood stove, and coming from Vermont, I knew how to fill it up, but I didn't, I put too much wood in. <laughs> Talk about it being hot here at the Rock. It was hot when I, when I was stoking that stove, and people were getting really mad at me. And then, one time I was sitting after lunch, and it was really hot, and I had a good meal, and I fell asleep, and I flattened the person sitting next to me. It was like a sardine can of, 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 of so many meditators, and I just knocked her over. But worse, I was really pissing people off because I didn't know anything about the etiquette. Like, there was an empty pillow, I'd just go sit on it. No one was sitting there, so it's there. If I wanted something, I'd just go take that pillow and just go there. You know, like, I was, I was just, I, I was getting a lot of people angry. But I thought it was like, you know, it's empty, you just go and sit there. I didn't know anything about the etiquette. Maybe that's happening here. Actually, I did get a note from a yogi saying, where's my mat? So believe it or not, the mats belong to the yogis here. <laughs> and, but actually, um, I'll actually know the story. But despite all of those things, I learned something incredibly valuable that really related back to that time when I was 16 turning into the skid. And... I'd ask questions of Rena, like, you know, I'm feeling a lot of anger, I'm feeling horny, I'm feeling scared, I'm feeling angry, like the whole top 40. Except there was more than 40. And, and her response almost all the time to me was, acknowledge what you're feeling. Acknowledgement will bring you knowledge. And I can't tell you how precious of a teaching that has been to me and, and, and just carried me through the, up till this day. I think my approach to dealing with my problems often was trying to analyze them, trying to separate from them, trying to figure them out. No doubt I did want to try to figure them out, but I didn't want to have, I wanted to get kind of away from, a little distance from them because they're really uncomfortable and, and she was inviting a very different Approach. Allow yourself to experience it. Acknowledge what it is that you're feeling. And I began to acknowledge my pain, as scary as it was. And it felt very similar to that counterintuitive feeling like when I'm in that skid and you know you want to get away from the skid, you have an uncomfortable feeling, I want to get away from that feeling. But remembering that skid and turning into it, I there was some sense, there was some seed that was planted. All right, let me begin to feel my shame, to acknowledge my pain, my all that's there. And began to turn into my pain. And gradually I learned to trust it. The trust that within my pain is the heart. My whole understanding shifted about meditation. I recognized that it was about really owning and embracing and acknowledging these different parts of oneself. Actually entering into the body as we have been doing, head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin, and so forth.
I know that for many of us, it may feel uncomfortable. I hear sometimes in the interviews, but I thought meditation, my mind's just going to be blank and everything will just be copacetic. So, you know, like on the, you know, the outside, it looks really nice here, you know. It's this, the rolling hills and the deer and the turkeys. And, but on the inside, it's sometimes I used to joke when I lived in the monastery, like it looks really nice on the outside, but on the inside, it's a shit accelerator. There's stuff just going everywhere. And so it might be like that here. Lots going on. But how do we work with this? So I'll offer you a reading from Pema Chodron that I'm very fond of. <clears throat> she says, generally, uh, we regard discomfort in any form as bad news. But for practitioners or spiritual warriors or people who have a certain hunger to know what's true, feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, fear, instead of being bad news, they're actually very clear moments that teach us where it is that we're holding back. They teach us to perk up and lean in when we feel we'd rather collapse and back away. They're like messengers that show us at times with terrifying clarity exactly where we're stuck. This moment is the perfect teacher and lucky for us it's with us wherever we are. There is a perennial wisdom, and it may feel kind of radical, this notion of turning in. To allow, to acknowledge. I trust number of you know Rumi's poem, The Guest House, where he says this being human is a guest house, and every moment can be a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. And very radical, Rumi says, welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows, who violently sweep your house and empty all of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. It may be clearing you out for some new delights. The dark thoughts, the shame, the malice, meeting them at the door inviting them in. It's a pretty radical teaching. You know, perhaps a number of us have seen that we've tried to turn away from these skids. And just when you're not looking, knocking on the door of our heart once again, here they are. What if we could begin to acknowledge what's here, to embrace what's here? There's a very powerful reading by Jennifer Wellwood that speaks to this. It's called Unconditional. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition I flee from, it pursues me 
each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. Very powerful teaching there. Can we dare to be open? To see it from another perspective? It's difficult because we are creatures of habit and habits sometimes are very helpful for our day-to-day life, but habits also can be, in a sense, um, confining. There's a story of ranchers and cows and they like to um, keep them in the corral and they build fences. Cows are very strong and they can knock over fences pretty easily. So in these days, of course, uh, with electricity, they put up electric um, you know, fence around the land, the corral, and uh, of course when the cow bumps up against it, it gets a shock. Ouch! Backs off. Happens a bit of time. But in time, the cows back off. They don't want to go near it. They know that's shock. And when the ranchers recognize that that has occurred, they shut off the power. Save money. And then the only thing that's keeping those cows in that corral is their own mind. And we can be like that in our own human way. We can be imprisoned by our own mind. Mindfulness is an incredible gift because it gives us awareness. If the lights are out, we can't see. We turn on the light of awareness and we can see more clearly where it is that we are. It offers us a possibility to make some change. If we're not mindful, I'd like to invite you to listen to this following sequence. This is an importance that's placed on the mind, an intention, habitual patterns, our life. It says that our intentions shape our thoughts, words, and actions. Our thoughts sculpt our bodily expressions. Our bodily expressions fashions our character. Our character hardens into what we look like. Sometimes it's said by the time we're 50, we get the face that we deserve. A friend of mine, Steve Flowers, was, he was telling me a story one day that he was uh, meditating. And all of a sudden he noticed that his lips were all like this, all stuck out. <laughs> then he realized that he wasn't meditating at all because what he was doing is he was yelling at the neighbor, and why didn't they put shut those dogs and those dogs just barking and barking and barking he was just sitting like this for a long time and then he began to realize when he sometimes saw people with their lips out like this all the time hard to say we get the face that we deserve and this is not to be demeaning but it's reflecting upon the power of our intentions and how they affect our lives. 
and can literally harden into our character and how we look. Never forget, I, growing up, I loved the Twilight Zone. I don't know how many of you love the Twilight Zone. I thought Rod Serling was a sage. And I remember one Twilight Zone, there's this guy, and he's got kind of this mean-spirited disposition. He's just kind of always mumbling, if everyone would just be like me, the whole world would just be a better place. Just everyone would just be like me, the world would be a better place. And he went to bed that, that night with that thought, and when he woke up in the morning, everyone looked like him and acted like him. And then it was, do 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 That was the end of the show. <laughs> That was the end of the show. That's kind of scary. So our task is to begin to free ourselves. Awareness. With awareness, we can begin to make that freedom. It's a very beautiful reading here by Margaret Wheatley. It speaks to this. She says, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. And we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. We self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we can succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. So I want to invite you be open to that possibility. Self-awareness can help break the seal of self. I love that sometimes the Buddha is referred to as, of course, the Buddha is the awakened one, and he's also referred to at times as the unconditioned, that he's attained the unconditioned. And to me, uh, in some ways, the unconditioned can represent a number of definitions, and one for me that I like is that he broke through the conditioned self, this self-seal that was fueled by these obscurations that we've been talking about of greed, hatred, and ignorance. The Buddha saw through that. And the narrative, the story, lessened. Just a little bit about the Buddha. He was born in Lumbini in 623 BC on the full moon day of May. And his father invited some like astrologers uh, to give blessings for the newborn child, and four of them predicted he'll become a great king like himself, but one, his name was Kodanya. He said, no, he'll become a Buddha. And father didn't like that idea. Father wanted him to be a king like himself and decided to do every single measure possible to make sure that Siddhartha Gautama, which was his name, that he would not see anything that would cause him to 
not become a king. I mean, to become a king and not become a Buddha. So it was a very protected and sheltered life. He got the latest iPhone and the new iPad and all the modern technology of the day, if you will. At the age of 29, some very amazing things happened in his life where he went out to the village, to the surrounding areas with his charioteersman, Shana. And he saw a number of signs that awakened him. He saw aging, illness, and death. And each time when he saw those, he asked Shana about those. And Shana says, you know, everyone... If you live long enough, you will age. No one can escape from aging. No one will escape from illness. No one will escape from death. And this uh, really disturbed him greatly. I was talking the other night about this Hindu proverb, everyone thinks everyone else is going to die but not me. But when that day happens and you realize it, things begin to change and he was really catapulted inside his heart to realize that becoming a king was not what he wanted to do. What he wanted to do was to figure out what is this meaning of life. And the last sign he saw was a, 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 like a, a monk, a traveling ascetic. And, and Siddhartha had never seen a person like him before because this person walked with a certain calmness and serenity and equanimity. And when Siddhartha inquired more about who this type of person was, Siddhartha recognized this is what he wanted to do. And on the night uh, that he was getting ready to leave, his father heard about it and begged him, don't go. And Siddhartha said that if you can promise me three things, I'll stay. The king got very happy because, you know, he had a lot of money. He had everything. Surely, son, what is it, those three things? And he said, prevent me from getting old, getting sick, and dying. The king was defeated. But he still begged his son, please, please, something else. Well, how about two wishes, Siddhartha said. Prevent me from getting ill and dying. The king couldn't do it. Finally came down to one wish. King could not do that either, as far as preventing death. And so Siddhartha left the palace, even in the midst of his wife giving birth. We'll come back to that because you might be thinking, left his wife? Of course, at this time, being a very um, extended family culture, he knew, of course, that everyone was going to be well cared for. And actually, as uh, there's a happy ending to this that I'll fast forward, that after his awakening, he comes back to the palace, to his son, to the king, to his family. And they all receive the gifts of the Dharma. And they all experience awakening. Actually, Mary Grace last night was referring to uh, a famous sutta on equanimity that was actually given to the Buddha to his son, Rahula. 
So Siddhartha Gautama went off on a sojourn and practiced many different meditative practices and mastered many of them and still didn't find the answers that he was looking for. And then he decided to practice, it was believed if you punish the body, self-mortification, this is the way to full awakening. And the story goes that he excelled at this to the point of near death. It was said that he reduced his food intake to one grain of rice a day. And that when he touched his belly, he touched his tailbone. And on the brink of exhaustion and literally near death, he realized the futility of this type of extreme practice. He left this group of five ascetics that he was practicing with and took some food, regained his strength, and he came across a very big, beautiful tree. It's later known now as the Bodhi tree, and he sat underneath that tree. And he made a determination that he was going to sit there and rather than going from one teacher to the next and this practice and that practice, he resided that he needed to be inside himself and find this out for himself. And he remembered, as he was sitting underneath the tree, a moment when he was a boy, it is said, And it was one of those like incredible, beautiful, we could say like even like a spirit rock day, where the wind was just right and the sun was just right and the breeze, it was just one of these incredible, exquisitely beautiful days. And it's said that as he recalled that memory, it was like just this beautiful moment of feeling connected and just this exquisite moment. Actually, Paul Simon has a song called You Think Too Much, and he says, have you ever experienced a moment of grace when your brain just took a seat behind your face and everything was just sunny, everything was just funny? Have you ever experienced a moment of grace? And it was kind of like that. It was a moment of grace, of connection. Yet right next to that moment of grace, there were some farmers out on a field, and they were putting the plows with the oxen into the earth for the first time, breaking the soils. And his sensitivity supposedly was so heightened, feeling that sense of connection, that he almost began to hear the cries of the worms being cut with the plows. And then this feeling of, oh, the sadness of this world. The sadness of this world. And then he recalled, sitting underneath the tree, that after remembering those two very touching experiences, that he began to become mindful of his breath in and out. And then, underneath the Bodhi tree, he began to become mindful of his breath in and his breath out. As he began to steady his mind, Factors of awakening arose, mindfulness, and investigation. We've been working, some of these factors are already happening inside you. Mindfulness, of course, investigation, sense of energy and rapture and so forth. So these different factors arose within him. And as this was happening, 
some may call this being a literal being. His name was Mara. Some might describe Mara as the tempter. That part of ourselves while we're meditating that says, wouldn't it be nice if tonight they had a better curry? Or whatever. The tempter. Mara comes to visit not only the Buddha, comes to visit each one of us. And so... It is said that Mara was aware of um, this gaining momentum of Siddhartha Gotama. These factors of awakening were happening. He was steadying his mind, and Mara was getting a little like, i got to stop this guy, and began to try to attack him, attack him with armies of fear. And it is said that, you know, metaphorically speaking, all these arrows were being you know, cast out upon Siddhartha Gotama, And as they landed by him, they turned into flowers. And supposedly, Siddhartha Gautama would say, every time of the Mara's attack, he'd say, I see you, Mara. The power of seeing. The power of naming. I see you, Mara. Then Mara sent out armies of seduction, armies of doubt, all these armies trying to stop him from waking each time, Siddhartha Gautama said, I see you, Mara. I see you. In the end, Mara was defeated and the Buddha fully awakened. The Buddha says, through many a birth, I wandered in samsara, seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again, and O householder, thou art now seen. Thou shalt build no home again. All the rafters are broken, the ridge poles are shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving, hatred, and ignorance. Achieved is the end of these obscurations of craving hatred, and ignorance. The Buddha understood, comprehended deeply the nature of suffering that, that exists in this world. And of course there's joys and wonders, but there's also incredible sufferings. And he understood its cause. He understood its pathway to great freedom. So I want to invite you in our practice to be willing when Mara comes visiting on your door, if Mara does come, is to name it, to see it, to acknowledge it. I see you, Mara. The story goes that the Buddha stayed underneath the Bodhi tree for three months and on the full moon of July at the Deer Park in Isipatana near Banaris at sunset, the Buddha taught, he decided to go back to those five ascetic friends. And when they saw him coming, they said, oh, there's that guy that started eating food again. We ain't going to honor him. He went off the path. But as the Buddha walked closer, there was such a feeling of radiance and calmness and without them even talking to one another, they all like kind of 
cleared out a space, made a seat, and gathered some water. That's very inspired. Mary Grace was telling us the story of when this center opened, and everybody was... You were, you were reciting the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And it was in Isipatana, three months after his enlightenment on the full moon of July, that the Buddha literally turned the wheel of the Dharma and taught these five ascetics what he had learned about suffering, its causes, its path to its end. And very interesting enough, what goes around comes around is that one of the ascetics, his name was Kodanya, and he was the fortune teller, astrologer guy way back when, when he was a baby. And he had predicted he will become a Buddha. And when Kodana attained, the Buddha saw and said, Kodanya knows. And then he said, come monk, ehi bhikkhu, come monk. And thus there was now two enlightened beings in the world. So I could go on and on, but this is a good place to stop. And so let's just sit for a minute. Perhaps as we sit here and you know, if Mara comes to see you, visit you, you can just know I see you wanting mind. I see you aversive mind. I see you doubting mind. And so I'll just end with a couple of readings. It's a very beautiful poem from Dana Falls. It's called Allow. There's no controlling life. There's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning boat or try containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it, it will create a new channel. Resist in the tide, it will sweep you off your feet. Allow, and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair. Practice becomes simply bearing the truth. Practice becomes simply bearing the truth. And in the choice to let go of your known way of being, a whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist in the tide, it will sweep you off your feet. Allow, 
and grace will carry you to higher ground. That's probably a perfect closing, but sometimes I just can't help myself. I feel that this next reading is important to honor our humanness and realness. Perhaps this practice is really about helping to make us real, authentic human beings. So this is from the Velveteen Rabbit. What's real, asked the rabbit one day, Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time and not just plays with you, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Yes, it does, said the skin horse. Sometimes it hurts. He says that when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. To become real takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easy or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out. And you get loose in your joints. And you get very, very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly. Except to people who don't understand. And once you're real, you can't be unreal again. It lasts for always. May we all dwell with peace. Thank you very much. Thank you. And... um, continue with some walking practice and then have a sit at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.